substance greater than sealed. Romans 4, 9 through 12. We continue our look this morning in Romans by turning our attention to this section, and it becomes obvious very quickly that Paul is still focused on the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone. He has been on this particular truth since he turned a corner in Romans 3.21. From his focus on the sinfulness of mankind, he turned the corner to tell his readers and us how the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. Having declared the good news of the the imputation of God's righteousness by grace through faith to all who believe in Jesus Christ in Romans 3, 21 through 26, Paul begins to answer questions that he knows exist in the hearts and minds, particularly of the Roman congregation, but also in our day. And these questions, even more specifically, relate to the Jewish people. Remember, Rome was a mixed congregation. Gentiles and Jews. And the Jews have questions hearing this radical preaching from this radical Jew that they aren't saved on any basis except the righteousness which is available to them by Jesus Christ without the works of the law on their part. He knows these questions. Many would say they're hypothetical, but I, I, I believe personally that these aren't hypothetical questions at all. I believe every one of these questions is a question which was in Paul's mind when he was converted. You see, he came to Christ miraculously, and then there was a lot to unpack about that coming to Christ. And I think these questions are best understood as the very questions that came up out of his heart whenever he came to know Jesus as his Savior. And he began to ask these kinds of questions. Of questions and other Jews were asking these questions. He knows the questions because they are the very questions he struggled to answer when he was brought to faith in Christ alone at his conversion. The first question he responds to then is this Then what becomes of our boasting? He answers this question in 327 through 31, and we saw that, and that is that the boasting is done away with, it's destroyed by the law of faith. Not the law of works. And Jacob gave us that tagline which we keep repeating week after week that he stole from a great theologian he said, Clint Eastwood, deservings got nothing to do with it. In other words, the boasting is done away with because nobody deserves to be saved. Nobody has made themselves righteous. We are not made right before God based on any good work we have performed But we are made right before God based on the finished work of Christ, which is transferred or imputed, given to us. Not infused. Don't ever get it twisted. You are not righteous today or any day, myself included. None of us has ever been righteous any day of our life based on something internal to us. In other words, God didn't take righteousness, put it inside me at my baptism or at some other point, and then now I stand before God on my righteousness. No, God took the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ, and put it on us. 
He counted it to us as righteous. He clothed us in this righteousness. He imputed it to us. He said, you are wicked, and Christ's righteousness makes you righteous. That's what he said. That's the gospel. That's the good news. All based on faith alone in Christ alone. The next question that arises, which he has to answer in Romans 4.1, is this. What shall, then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Corey helped us understand this passage so great uh, last week. Why does Abraham not have anything to boast about before God? Well, Paul says in 4, 1 through 8, that there's no room for boasting because Abraham was declared righteous by God based on his faith in God. That's why he was declared. The ground, the base, the foundation of Abraham standing before God has nothing whatsoever to do with his work or his effort. Abraham believed God in Genesis 15, 6, Paul says, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed in work, in the work of Christ that would be completed far in the future, from his perspective, according to the plan and promise of God. This is what Jesus means when he says to the Pharisees, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Abraham didn't see completely, but he saw sufficiently that God promised and delivered in one Messiah. And Jesus said, that's my day. And he rejoiced at it. It was according to the plan and promise of God. And when he believed in that promise, he was clothed in the righteousness of the obedience and sacrifice of the Messiah. No room for boasting in work. There's no room for boasting. Because we didn't do it. It would be totally ridiculous for you or I to boast in this work. Or Abraham. Our only boast and Abraham's only boast is Jesus Christ alone. And the blessing of imputed righteousness which makes us legally right before a holy God is given to those who do not work but believe in the one who justifies the wicked. That is good news, church. You can't boast. And the blessing is given to you. You didn't earn it. So this morning we come to Romans 4, 9 through 12. Let's read it. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the 
circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who walk, who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now we need the help of the Holy Spirit to get all of this in our minds. And I've already asked him. But I mean, I hope you're praying right now, help me get this. Because church, this is fundamental to your faith, my faith. That we get this right. Abraham and all who have faith like him are counted righteous by grace through faith. The question he asked in 9a, look at it there, is meaningful because the Jews of Paul's day wanted to know how they received the blessing. He brought the blessing up in Psalm 32 from David. Our, fa- our father, David, was blessed. God didn't count his sin against him. Right? Well, how did he get the blessing? They had that question. And the Gentiles in the church were often tempted to think that they couldn't receive this blessing without going through a ritual ceremony, receiving a sign of circumcision. There was a huge argument. It's going to get settled later. It it, it gets settled after the beginning, right? The beginning of the church, a lot of argument about this. The gospel's going to the Gentiles, and what's happening? They're saying, oh, you Gentiles, y'all aren't fully saved until you take the mark in your flesh of circumcision. And Paul says, may it never be that. May we never add to what God has done in His Son, Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, he withstood another apostle, Peter, over this in Galatians. And we get the recording of it. He withstood him to his face. He said, you're playing a hypocrite. You're declaring in one side of your mouth, grace, and another side, but you got to add to it. They had a whole church council about it. All the apostles and Paul met together, Barnabas, and they made a report to the churches that said this. You do not have to be circumcised to be saved, just like the circumcised. That was the decision of the church. Thank God for that. Paul again assures the readers in his day that Abraham was declared righteous by God based on his belief in Christ and nothing else. This has been his concern from the beginning of this whole section. We have to understand that if we, listen to me, if we mix any elements into the ground of our justification, our right standing before God. If we mix any other element into it, then we become weak and we will be tempted to lose hope in salvation at all. Foundation makes a building. You don't believe me? Get it wrong and find out. What happens to bad foundations, buildings built on bad foundations? They crumble and fall. Just this weekend, a court in Florida awarded to 21 families $1 billion, $21 million because a high-rise crumbled because an inspector or a series of inspectors and companies 
ignored the report that the foundation of this building is unstable because it is crumbling underneath the heavy weight of this building due to the bad construction. They ignored it. People died because you can't live your life in a faulty on a faulty foundation. You might get away with it today. You might get away with it tomorrow. But judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. And it's far worse than a billion dollars. It's eternal hell. Listen to me. If we get this wrong, if we miss this, our lives will crumble. Our lives will crumble under the weight of the righteousness of God. What do I mean? Often people come to me and they're struggling with their salvation. And they, they ask questions, and it sounds something like this. Or we might have a conversation. It might go something like this. Carlton, I don't know if I'm truly a Christian or not. Now, I've known some of these people 20 years who come to me. They sat under the preaching of this church. They've professed faith for all those years. And now they're asking, why might I be a Christian? And my answer is something like this. Do you believe in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in Him alone for your salvation? Now that usually gets this kind of a response. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I know I believe in Jesus. But the problem I'm having is... The person then begins to describe one of two things. Either they will tell me they have committed a sin or they will tell me they are experiencing, experiencing spiritual laziness. They'll say, oh yeah, I got it, Carl. I know, don't tell me about the gospel again. Don't tell me all that. I already know that. I believed in that. I've been baptized into that. I got it. But what you don't understand is that I can't have confidence because I've sinned. Because I'm not reading my Bible enough. Or something else. The, the problem here, I hope you see, is this. They are mixing into the foundation of their standing before God work or effort on their part. If they don't do enough good things, then they can't be saved. If they, don't do, if they do too many bad things, or if the thing they do is so bad, they must not be saved. Church, listen to what Paul said to that kind of thinking in 9b. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? I don't think you do. You would be ecstatic at this point. Listen, church, there's nothing that you bring to the table when you stand before God that causes Him to look on you as righteous before Him. Nothing! Nothing! In my hands I bring only to your cross 
I clean. That is good news. Gloriously good news. The only good news in the whole universe. When you start placing your effort or your obedience into the foundation of your justification before God, then you are destroying the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with your work, my work, someone else's work, our daddy's work. It has to do with his work and his work alone. We can't be saved by anything we do or don't do because our only hope in this life and the next life is that we have laid claim to the finished work of Christ by trusting in Him alone. Let me make it plain. Let me really ruffle your feathers, Grace Fellowship, because we are a Bible-centered, a Bible people, and we should be a Bible people. Let me push you a little bit. If you truly believe in Jesus Christ alone and you never pick your Bible up again, you will be saved. Thank you. I don't think some of us believe it. We've become Jews according to the flesh because it makes us feel good. Because we can bring something to God and say, I know you did everything, but, but look what I did. If you come to God on that basis, even the least little bit, you will die and go to hell. You will not be saved. In verse 9, Paul says that the blessing of the covenant that we enjoy, that Abraham enjoyed, that David enjoyed, is justification by faith alone. He picks David for a reason. David was the great king of Israel, but he was a murderer and an adulterer. And when he was confronted with his sin, he did not run to all of the good things he had done before he became an adulterer and a murderer. He threw himself on God and said, Cleanse me, O God. You do the work. You do it. Too many of us are saying, God, you did a work, now I'm going to do a work, so you'll love me, so you'll accept me, so you'll forgive me. That's not how it works. He answers that question. So we continue to unfold this passage by nailing down when Abraham was justified before God. Was it before or after he was circumcised? Paul has declared the gospel to them, destroyed their ground for boasting, destroyed their ground for work, and now he takes aim on one of their most precious possessions, circumcision. The Jews took so much pride in the fact that they had received circumcision. They boasted in it. They even began to look at their circumcision as their means of salvation before God. Listen to some of the words of the Jews in Paul's day. Some of the leaders, some of the teachers in his day. Listen to this. And everyone that is born, and everyone that is born, the flesh of whose foreskin is not circumcised on the eighth day, belongs not to the children of the covenant which the Lord made with Abraham, but to the children of destruction. Nor is there, moreover, any sign on him that he is the Lord's. Another rabbi said this, Great is circumcision, for despite 
all the religious duties which Abraham our father fulfilled, he was not called perfect until he was circumcised. Some of the Jewish teachers went so far as to say God created the world for circumcision. Is that strange? That ought to be strange to you. God created this whole thing so he could circumcise male children on the eighth day. That's what they believed. That's what they taught. But I saved the best till last. This is probably the wildest quote on circumcision I read. This is what one of their teachers said. No Israelite man who is circumcised will go down to Gehenna. Hell. What then of the very, listen to their their twisted logic. What then of the very few wicked in Israel? Really? Who deserve Gehenna? They cannot go down to that place of doom, circumcised. So God sends an angel who stretches their foreskin and then they descend into Gehenna. They had gone to the extent of exalting circumcision to where it had to be reversed for a non-believer, a non-good Jew, to go to hell. That's serious commitment to a belief right there. The people actually began to believe that circumcision kept you from hell. They had begun to believe so much in circumcision that they had made the promise of a Messiah unnecessary. Why would you need a Messiah? Why would you be looking for a Messiah? I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm good. But before we get too indignant toward these Jews, let's be honest with ourselves. We tend to do the same thing, don't we? How many are believing that they will be saved because they repeated a prayer, walked an aisle, were baptized in water? How many of us are believing that we are okay with God today because we go to church, we read our Bibles, we pray daily, we try our best to obey the commands of God in His Word? Do you see how we place our hope in the outward works that we can produce. The Jews place their faith in circumcision and not in God who gave them the promise without circumcision. He gave the promise without circumcision. Now, we do the same thing often. When we lose our confidence in our salvation, it's often because we have placed our faith in the wrong things. We've placed our faith in our standing before God on shaky foundations, just like the Jews. We place our hope in things like baptism or works or boasting in our membership among the right kind of Christians. Paul puts an end to this line of thinking that circumcision justified Abraham. And he did it by pointing out the biblical truth that God counted Abraham righteous in Genesis 15, 6. 
based solely on the fact that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. It wasn't until at least 14 years later that we read that Abraham received the command to place a sign on his flesh to mark him out as a covenant member with God. How do we know this? How do we know that it was at least this long? Well, when Abraham received the promise in Genesis 15 and believed, the whole topic was brought up from his perspective because he didn't have any children and Genesis 12 had already happened and he was asking God, how is it that you're going to make me a great nation to be a blessing to all the nations if I don't have one from my own self as my heir? And God answered the question for him and he said again, you're going to have descendants that are more numerable than the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. And he promised it to him. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So if we start in Genesis 15, there, he's childless. Then we look at, at Genesis 16, and we're not going to preach on this, but Abraham interrupted himself on the plan of God and inserted himself. The only work that Abraham did, he did wrong, and he had Ishmael. Ishmael, in Genesis 17, when he receives the mark of the sign, he was 13 years old. Okay, when, when Abraham circumcised his whole house, he circumcised Ishmael, he was 13 years old. So that means that we believe Abraham was 86 when he received the promise in Genesis 15, and we believe he was 99 when he was circumcised, 14 years later, 13, 14 years later. So Abraham was not justified based on circumcision, because God declared him just earlier, 14 years earlier. Circumcision did not and could not make him righteous because it wasn't even commanded or done for years after God declared him righteous. The point is that nothing we do after God graces us with faith and declares us righteous through that faith can be mixed back into the work necessary to make us righteous. Christ's work is the foundation, and nothing can be added to it because it is a perfect foundation. It is the only sustainable foundation because as our confession said this morning, our catechism said, <clears throat> we need a mediator who is both fully man, truly man, and truly God. And only Christ is that. The Jews dropped, listen, this is my way of saying it. The Jews dropped their gaze from the promise of Christ. And they began to gaze at the seal of their flesh. And they placed their hope in it for salvation. That's what it says here is that circumcision was a sign and a seal of the faith they, that Abraham already had. It was a sign and a seal. What we need to understand is that we do the same thing so often. We drop our gaze 
from the promise of God to declare us righteous through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We stop staring at the cross. We stop looking to Jesus. And we begin to gaze at the sign in our effort or in our baptism or in our church membership or in our lack of bad, grotesque sins. And we drop our gaze and we look at all of our works and we say, this justifies me. No. May it never be this way. Because what you put your hope in, listen to me, what you put your hope in will have to sustain you not only in this life, but in the next life. What you hope in has to be sufficient, in other words, beginning to end. And you and I can't be declared righteous based on our work today because we got works that are mixed with unrighteousness even in our best moments. And we were unrighteous fully before we came to know Christ as our Savior. And when we die, any work we did will stand before Him and be judged according to His standard. Perfect righteousness. We need to take our eyes of faith and gaze at the one who is lifted up on our behalf. And we don't ever need to take them off. Oh, and I want to become a better Christian. Gaze at the founder and perfecter of your faith. Well, I, I want to clean my life up so that I'll look respectable to other people. Stop trying to please men and worry about pleasing God. How do I please God? By truly believing that he has done it all. Therefore, all glory goes to him. Circumcision was received as a seal of the righteousness that is received by faith while not circumcised. Abraham was declared righteous before God as a Gentile. The fact is that God had been declaring people righteous from the beginning based on their believing his promise alone. Men like Abel and Seth and Noah and many, 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 many more were declared righteous. And they knew nothing about circumcision. None of them were circumcised. So what meaning did circumcision have? I'm glad you asked. Paul was certainly glad that they asked in his day. What did it mean? It was very meaningful to the one who also believed in God. Listen to how Paul words it. We already looked at this passage in Romans 2, 28 through 29. Listen to this. For no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Did you notice in, in, in Romans 2 that he used the word merely, one outwardly and not inwardly? He used that term there. But he also says in our text the very same thing. That it's not 
merely those who are circumcised. Notice in verse 12. It's not merely the circumcised. But they, the Jews, in other words, weren't justified by their circumcision. Not merely their circumcision. Same wording as Romans 2. Why? Because circumcision has a place, but not in terms of how we stand before God in justification. Not in terms of that. Not in terms of that for the Jews or anyone else. Paul gives us the significance of circumcision as only for those who have also been circumcised or they've had their dead hearts carved out and removed. And that's done by faith alone in Christ alone. That's when circumcision mattered to the Jew. Only when they were one inwardly. God always gives a sign and a seal when he makes a covenant. He always does it. The scriptures are full of it. For Noah, it was a rainbow. For Abraham, it was circumcision. For Moses, it was the law. For David, it was a throne. And for Jesus, it was his baptism. But the covenant promise was not secured by the sign and the seal. Noah was not rescued from the flood by anything other than God's grace. And then, after saving him, God placed a rainbow in the sky. The sign, seal, did not accomplish the covenant. God accomplished the covenant. Moses and the people of Israel were delivered from slavery out of Egypt, and then they received the law at Mount Sinai. David was chosen by God through the prophet Samuel to be the king of Israel. And much later, he was promised a throne that would endure forever. God was keeping his word. And the proof of it was the proof of it was in the sign, but it was not because of the sign. Jesus is the God-man from his virgin birth. But the seal of who he was was placed on him when he was baptized in the Jordan. And the voice boomed forth from heaven and the spirit descended on him like a dove. The seal to the outside world. The sign to everyone who was there. That he was who he was. Was when he was baptized. 30 years later. He didn't become God at his baptism. He was signified to be God in the flesh at his baptism. And Paul makes this perfectly clear to all of us. That this is exactly what circumcision functioned as for Abraham. Abraham received the gift of faith from God to believe in the promise. And through that faith in God's future work, he was declared righteous. And then, years later, he was given the sign and the seal in his flesh of circumcision. Listen, circumcision was very good and very powerful as a reminder to Abraham that he belonged to God. It was powerful in that it recalled the promise of God. It functioned as a declaration of faith. That is, it testified to the faith that he already had. But it did not give him faith. And it did not cause him to be counted 
righteous. It's no different than this ring. You see, June the 6th, 1998, I took the most beautiful girl in the world to an altar. Better said, she met me there. And we pronounced a covenant before God and our family and friends. And as part of that ceremony, thank God, she said yes and put this ring, well, one different one, but this is still the same symbol. Put this ring on my finger. Did the ring make me married? Absolutely not. What made me married to this woman, who I'm still married to 24 years later, is the covenant which I made before God and the world, and the covenant she made with me before God and the world. And it was sealed and signified through the coming of us into one flesh, and it's represented to the whole world right here. You can't see our one flesh union. That would be indecent. But you can see my ring. And guess what? When I'm tempted to let my eyes or my heart go somewhere else, you better believe this ring stands as a testimony that the only true and living relationship I will ever have in this life is represented right here. I don't not fail the covenant because the ring, I look through the ring and see the covenant. So let me take this ring off and give it to any man in this room. What does it mean for you? Go to my house with my ring on. And try to enjoy the privileges of being married to my wife. And watch how fast you get turned out. It's not any different than when our Lord says to those who came to him saying, We preached in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did many mighty signs in your name. And he says, Depart from me. For I never knew you. Don't come to my house with your works. Stand on my work alone. Stand on it. Believe it. And don't take one step any other direction. (laughs) That's good news. Because it doesn't count on me. It counts on him. All on him. A hundred percent on him. And this is exactly what Paul says about circumcision. When Abraham, who did not waver in his faith, but always trusted in God, saw the sign in his flesh, he remembered the God who keeps his word. And he kept his eyes on him. And let me give you one more. It's the same Peter says about our baptism. You were saved by the grace of God, placed into the family of God by faith, through faith, by grace alone. 
But when you got baptized in the water, it became for you a signpost that you will never forget. Matter of fact, Martin Luther said, I'm a baptized man. <laughs> he wasn't meaning that he, that did anything to save him. He was saying, that marks me as belonging to the king. I'm a baptized man. And I stand with him. I'm a baptized man. I'm a baptized man. God did it this way. He did it this way. So that Abraham might be the father of those who, are faith, who have faith no matter their ethnic background. Paul first tells us in 11b that he received the sign after he was declared righteous so that he would be the father of the uncircumcised who believe. Righteousness is counted to the uncircumcised who believed. Then he adds in 12a that he is also the father of the circumcised who walk in the footsteps of who who walk in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham. You see it there? That's a very important phrase to understand in this passage. He's the father of the uncircumcised, which he spends the first 9 through 11a proving without a doubt. Why do we know that? Because he was justified before he was circumcised, so that he could be the father of all who believe and are not circumcised. And the Gentiles in the congregation are raising hands and singing hallelujah. And he says he, he's also the father of the circumcised. And the Jews perked up. We knew it would count for something, but he, look what he says. Who are circumcised, what? And walk in the faith of Abraham. You're not a Jew based on your ethnicity. You're a Jew based on whether your heart has been circumcised. Your flesh counts for nothing, in other words. Don't come in here gazing at your marks in the flesh. Gaze at the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then you will look through your marks of the flesh and see him. Not anything else. This is what I want us to walk away with. I want us to walk away with this today. That we have been declared righteous by believing in the promise of God. That is in Jesus Christ alone. The promise is that our righteousness is given to us by the finished work of Christ. The sign and seal of our living faith in Christ is baptism renewed regularly in communion, which we're about to take. Every time you take communion, listen, you look through the bread and see his body. You look through the juice and you see his blood shed for you. And you remember that you are a baptized man. You belong to Jesus. And we renew those every time we do take those communion, uh, those communion vows. We remember the Lord. We remember the Lord until he comes again. Won't it be beautiful to one day not have to look through the bread and the juice but look into the face of the light of the Son of God, who is our salvation. Amen. And then, having known all of those things, I want us to rejoice. I want us to rejoice. I want us to sing. I want us to celebrate Him. And that's what we intend to do in this communion service. 
You may have come here today and you may not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so communion is not for you. Why? Because the sign and the seal are meaningless and even condemnation for you because you don't 